What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host today, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am thrilled and humbled to be in dialogue with Jane Rogoiska. She is an independent writer, and she is the author of the book we will be discussing today, Surviving Katyn, Stalin's Polish Massacre and the Search for Truth, published in London by One World Publishing, 2021. Jane I am tremendously fortunate to have this time with you today. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure, Ari. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your journey to become a writer, inspired your interest in the topic of this book? I was was born and bred in London uh, to a British mother and a Polish father. Um, I was educated initially at Cambridge University and then I went to film school and I spent some years working in the film industry, but I found that I was spending a lot of time researching and writing and I was working on a project about the Spanish Civil War and I put so much research into it uh, as a film project, I began thinking that actually it would be better as a book and that sort of set me down a path where I decided to focus my uh, research interests in writing principally, and I I stopped filmmaking. Um, And since then, I've written another two books. And I suppose I've, I've begun to focus very much on the area that interests me most, which is sort of 20th century European history. And I suppose I'm very drawn to the the edges of of war. I'm very interested in the 1930s and the period that leads up to the Second World War. I'm very interested in the period just after. So these periods of massive transition. Um, And my interest in Katyn, I suppose, partly you would have to say does come from my half Polish background. I traveled to Poland in my 20s, learned Polish as an adult, um, spent some time there. And I became interested in the topic of Katyn. I think I, uh, partly having written about the Spanish Civil War, I was thinking a lot about conflict. And in 2010, this is a long time ago, but in 2010, you may recall, there was the Smolensk air disaster, which was when um, a group of Polish dignitaries, including the president, were on their way to Smolensk in Russia to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the Katyn massacre when their plane crashed, killing everyone on board. It was a a sort of horrendous echo of Katyn itself. Um, And briefly, the story of the Katyn massacre was in the British press. And I realized at that point that none of my friends knew the first thing about Katyn. Um, And I think that sowed the first seed of, of beginning to investigate it. Um, I then started reading about it and it took a very long time before I decided to write about it Um, and it took even longer to decide how to write about it. Um, uh, So I I suppose I'm I'm very interested in trying to tell this very traumatic story in a balanced way that allows people who don't know anything about it to understand it, to set it in its full historical context. But also I think I'm probably the first person to write about it following fully the kind of chronology of the people who survived. So so my book follows the chronology of events as it was experienced by the people who experienced them. So, So most books, tend to focus on the victims and uh, and you go straight from the, the camp to 
to their death. And, and I've done it somewhat, somewhat differently. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's a difficult question to answer. I, I suppose I'd like them to feel interested enough in this subject that they might want to read about it. What are the primary themes in this book? What message does your book convey to your readers? I'm not sure that I ever write with an intention of conveying a particular message. I think what I really try to do is because I'm not a I'm I'm not a historian by training, but I've sort of become a historian because of that's what I the area that I work in. And my interest is very much in conveying the individual human experience of ordinary individuals who are caught up in massive historical events. So I, although I provide the context of the political events around them, I really want people to be able to feel what it might be like to be in a particular situation. Where is Katyn specifically located? Can you describe the physical geography and the social geography so Katyn is um, is actually an, a sort of slightly um, a bit of a misnomer. So so Katyn is actually an um, umbrella term. When we talk about the Katyn massacre, a lot of people assume that we are talking about a, a single event in a single geographical location. Uh, there's a historical reason for this, um, but the, the the fact of the matter is is that. Um, during World War II in September 1939, as the Polish army retreated from the Nazi invasion, they fell into the arms of the Soviet Red Army, which was invading Poland from the east. And many thousands of Polish soldiers were taken prisoner and the officers were taken to special NKVD intelligence camps, uh, primarily in three locations in the Soviet Union. So one was in a place called Kozhelsk near Smolensk in Russia. One was in Starobyelsk, which is in today's Ukraine near Kharkiv. And the other one was in Ostashkov, which is up in the north of Russia near Tver. Um, and there were also prisoners taken in uh, into two NKVD prisons in today's Belarus and today's Ukraine. So this the, the massacre occurred, which occurred in April 1940, in these separate, distinct locations, all at the same time and all under the same order from uh, Joseph Stalin and Lavrenti Beria, who was the head of the NKVD. Um, but the uh, because the massacre was carried out in such secrecy, the graves were not all discovered. And, and the first grave to be discovered was found by the Nazis in 1943 in the Katyn Forest, which is nearest the Kozhelsk camp near Smolensk. And therefore, it was called the Katyn Massacre because that was the place where the first few thousand bodies were found. But in fact, Katyn refers to several locations and one sort of umbrella event, if that makes sense. Yes, thank you. Can you comment on the state of conservation pertaining to the sites associated with the Katyn massacre? How have the sites been preserved or conserved since the Second World War? What state are they in today? Uh, well, I don't know what state they're in precisely today, because I haven't uh, been there recently. Um, after the war, the um, after the war, so immediately after the war, and right up until 1990, post the collapse of communism, it was only the Katyn Forest site which was recognised as a mass grave, and it was throughout communist times. It was. Um, uh, falsely claimed as a Nazi crime. So it's commemorated as a Nazi crime and probably not a great deal was done to it to, to, to maintain things there. In the 1990s, after the collapse of communism, when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev finally admitted Soviet guilt for the crime of Katyn, um, the other locations were given to the Poles, and so they were permitted to do exhumations in those locations. Now, obviously, you're talking about a, 
a very, very different prospect. When the, when the Germans were performing exhumations in 1943, you were dealing with bodies which were three years old. Um, and in 1990, you know, you had several decades. So they performed uh, exhumations there. Many of the sites had been partially destroyed during the 1970s when the Soviets uh, had a tendency to try to destroy former scenes of crimes. Um, but there are now commemorative sites in all three places, monuments, uh, names of victims, places where families can go to commemorate not just um, the Polish victims of Katyn, but also Soviet victims of other murders that took place in the same locations, because these burial sites often uh, contained other graves as well. How did Polish-Soviet relations evolve between the Russian Revolution and World War II. How did Soviet-Polish relations deteriorate to such a point whereby the Katyn massacre became a reality? Can you perhaps in a modest or brief way contextualize the events that occurred in Polish Soviet relations between the Polish-Soviet War of 1919 to 1921 and the events of the Katyn massacre? So, okay, I mean, that's a big question. It's a, it's a big question. So obviously, um, uh, you refer to the 1919-1920 Polish-Soviet War, and in the intervening years, um, you know, the Soviet Union was in many respects quite um, turned in on itself and quite... Uh, cut off from Western Europe, the rest of European society. And it wasn't necessarily that the Poles and the Soviets were destined to go to war. But um, as soon as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was signed and uh, Stalin made an agreement with Hitler that they would divide up Poland between them, uh, you had the makings of a situation, obviously, that was um, incredibly detrimental to, to Polish society. And the specific reasoning behind uh, Stalin's desire to remove the Polish elites is still subject to a great deal of uh, speculation, because I don't think we will ever fully know 100% for sure why he decided to have them killed at that particular moment in history. Um, but the fact was that um, both the Nazis and the Soviets had a very similar approach to uh, Poland when they invaded it, which was that it, it was in their interest if they wanted to rule these um, uh, the country, was to remove people who might provide some sort of obstacle to their rule. So leaders, elites, um, intellectuals, anybody who might pose any kind of obstacle to Soviet rule. Uh, and this was a policy that was often carried out in areas of Soviet domination. Um, and whilst more frequently you might expect them to be deported, um, many hundreds of thousands of Poles were deported to the Soviet Union um, during the Second World War. Um, but the specific reason for keeping these uh, army officers, there were mainly army officers, um, there were some naval officers as well, was actually initially because they wanted to gain intelligence from them. Uh, and they also wanted to try to convert them to communism. So the, the months that these uh, prisoners of war, I mean, they should have been considered prisoners of war, spent in these NKVD camps were really not about working moving towards inevitable death it was more about trying to sound them out to see what kind of information could be got out of them and whether they might be susceptible to uh coming over to the to the other side as it were to 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 communism um and when it became apparent that the vast majority of them were never going to convert to communism i suppose a decision had to be made about what they were going to do about them and uh, the decision was taken to liquidate them as sort of irredeemable enemies of the Soviet state. Um, and they were liquidated in, in, in enormous secrecy. And I think it's important to underline that, that um, I think the secrecy was, was part of the fact that um, even Stalin and even Beria were aware of the fact that these were not Soviet citizens, they were foreign citizens taken in war. So they should have had the status of prisoners of war. So it was actually very, 
a bold step, even for the brutal activities of, of someone like Stalin. And, and let's not forget that, you know, you have just had in the Soviet Union, you've just had Stalin's terror in the 1930s, where he's been busying himself, uh, murdering, you know, thousands and thousands of Soviet citizens. So in the context of that level of brutality, it doesn't really come as any surprise. It's more a question of why it should have happened at that particular moment. And given the subsequent turnaround in the war when the Nazis then invaded the Soviet Union, um, you in fact then get a situation where um, Poland becomes allied to the Soviet Union by default because they're allied to the British. And, and so actually those officers uh, could have been of some use to them. Um, so there is a there is a sort of well-known um, incident where Beria talks about having made a big mistake by, by getting rid of these officers. And it's quite possible that the mistake was the fact that they got rid of them and in fact they could have served some purpose. What, if anything, was unique about the Katyn massacre vis-a-vis other atrocities perpetrated by Joseph Stalin during his rule? Well, I think, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think what is unique about the Katyn massacre is that uh, most of the brutality perpetrated by Stalin was against Soviet citizens. And if not Soviet citizens, then often it was individuals. So to perpetrate a massacre on this scale of foreign nationals, prisoners of war, um, is is quite a thing. Um, As I said, it was much more usual to deport people, send them to Siberia or Kazakhstan, and let them work themselves to death. Um, Whereas actually killing 22,000 men one by one is is an extraordinary um, sort of feat of determination, if nothing else. So I suppose that is one of the things that distinguishes it and makes it worthwhile picking it out, because obviously in the kind of sea of brutality that is the Second World War, you might legitimately say, why should we care about this massacre and not all the other massacres that took place? Um, I think also what really sets Katyn apart is what happened subsequently. So uh, as I mentioned, that the, the murder was carried out in really extraordinary secrecy and the NKVD went to extraordinary lengths to make sure that that not only did people outside not find out what had happened but that the prisoners themselves were convinced that they were actually going home so they left the camps joyfully and willingly and uh, went to their deaths really more or less ignorant until the last minute about what their fate was. And they're a very small number of survivors, there are under 400 survivors. And those survivors were kept on Soviet territory in another prison camp under quite sort of relatively comfortable circumstances for a further 18 months. And they were completely unaware of what had happened to their comrades. And this lie was perpetuated for so long, I mean, right up until the end of communism, 1990. Um, I think that really sets it apart because um, having set in motion this this train of events where you're having to conceal the deaths of so many foreign nationals on your soil, um, when the Nazis discovered the mass graves, they forced the NKVD into a series of ever more elaborate efforts to try and cover it up. And so there was this massive political explosion argument in 1943 when the Nazis found this mass grave and they tried to exploit it for propaganda purposes and it set off a a, a very big political row um, right in the middle of World War II. Um, and, And I think that the methods used by the NKVD to deny the crime to fabricate evidence, to suppress witnesses, and to maintain a fictionalized narrative that Katyn was actually a Nazi crime committed in 1941 instead of a Soviet crime committed in 1940, is not only unique in its elaborate nature and length of of, of time, but also tells us, I I mean, has, has a lot to tell us now because those methods of denial and fabrication continue to be used by uh, the Russian state under Putin 
in in current times. And I think anybody looking at at Katyn now and looking at the way that it was concealed and uh, the way that things were denied can find a lot of, you know, very fascinating um, but kind of disturbing parallels with the way that the FSB and Putin operate in today's context. Can you elaborate on Nazi Germany's response to the Katyn massacre? Yes, so it's a very unusual situation because um, the area where the Kozhalsk camp and the Katyn forest was based, which is near Smolensk in Russia, Western Russia, was obviously part of the Soviet Union at the beginning of the war. But after 1941, when the Nazis invaded uh, the Soviet Union, um, it soon was occupied by the German army. And during the war, subsequently, then the front line moved back again and the Soviets retook it. So it was a, an area that was a, a live front line area. So when the German army happened to be occupying it and they were um, told by some locals that there might be some graves there and they, they dug them up, it was an opportunity as far as Joseph Goebbels was concerned of... Um, maximizing the potential for a propaganda coup because he saw obviously he saw evidence of what he termed a bolshevik crime uh, and and in this case the only two groups of people who knew the truth absolutely were the soviets because they had perpetrated the crime and the nazis because they knew that they hadn't as far as the rest of the world was concerned it was a question of who could have the most convincing narrative. So for the Nazis, it presented an opportunity to say, look at your allies and look how brutal they are and look at who you've allied yourself with, to say this to Britain and to the United States in particular, and to stir up disagreement between the allies, between Stalin and and Britain and the US. It was also an example of a a war crime uh, that was not perpetrated by the Nazis. It it was a Soviet war crime. And and in the context of the horrors that were going on at the time, um, it made it very difficult for the Allies to work out who was telling the truth because they were all too ready to believe that it was the Nazis who actually had committed this crime. Can you elaborate further on the British and American responses to the Canteen Massacre? What sure. were the similarities I mean, and differences between American and British responses? What do they teach us about the Allied perception of this tragedy? I might say something first, just to finish on the German sure. um, perspective. So, so because the Germans knew that they were not guilty of Katyn, they did their utmost to allow international um, teams to come to the site and investigate it. So they allowed the Polish Red Cross to come. They wanted an international Red Cross tribunal to come, as did the Polish government. But unfortunately, because the Soviets would not participate, it wasn't possible. They invited journalists, they invited prisoners of war, they took film footage, they took photographs. So a lot of the documentation that we have from that first exhumation came partly from the Polish Red Cross, but also from the German exhumation. Um, so they were very much uh, of the in the spirit of we have nothing to hide. And it probably should also be pointed out that at the exact same time that they found these graves, they found another mass grave in Vinitsia in Ukraine, which was a massacre that had been carried out under the Soviet terror in 19 in the late 1930s and under very similar circumstances it got much less publicity than Katyn because obviously Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union it was much easier for the Soviets to control that particular narrative Um, referring to your question about the allied response um, to Katyn um, I think you could encapsulate the British and the American response as a kind of studied ambiguity because um, as far as Churchill and Roosevelt were concerned, their main aim was to defeat Hitler. In order to do this, they needed Stalin on side. They needed Russia. They knew that they couldn't defeat Hitler without Russia. You had an Eastern Front going on that's really important. In, in that context, Katyn was an incredibly 
awkward thing to happen because the Poles, the Polish government in exile, who let's not forget were based in London, um, had quite a lot of evidence to suggest that, that what the Germans were saying was true. It was a Soviet crime. They had been accumulating uh, evidence for a long time and they were you know, 99% sure that it was the Soviets. But in the absence of any neutral international body being able to go to the site in 1943 to conclusively say this was a crime committed in April 1940, not in the autumn of 1941. They allowed the political expedience of um, uh, the ambiguity that that allowed to hold sway so that they didn't uh, push Stalin away. Stalin, of course, absolutely knew this and he knew he was in a very strong position he uh, threw all his toys out of the pram made a big fuss about it pointed his finger at the germans uh, broke off diplomatic relations with the polish government in exile which he was intending to do anyway um and, and really at the end of the day um you know for, for the for the british and for the americans it it, it was a sort of slightly shamefaced um approach where they allowed the Soviet version of events to stand in order to to carry on with their main objective of winning the war. And that ambiguity stood really officially unchallenged until the end of uh, the collapse of communism. Can you tell us about the Gryazovets camp? What is its importance? So the Gryazovets camp was the camp that um, the small number of survivors were sent to. So um, the, the, the three camps that the prisoners were taken to at the beginning of the war, as I mentioned earlier, were Kozhelsk, Starobyalsk and Ostashkov. Um, and there were about 14,500 prisoners in those three camps. In April to May 1940, those camps were emptied and the vast majority of the prisoners were murdered. But um, for a variety of reasons, just under 400 of them were saved. And they were sent to this camp in, in, um, in, 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 the, in the Soviet Union. And they were kept there until the summer of 1941, when following the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, um, they then were liberated and were allowed to go to join the Polish army that was being formed in the Soviet Union under General Anders. And they then subsequently left the Soviet Union um, and uh, went to Persia, Iran, and then Iraq, Egypt, Palestine. And uh, m- most of them fought at, you know, in Italy and Monte Cassino. And a large majority of them ended up in exile after the war because they couldn't go back to Poland. Many of them in the UK, some of them in Canada, some of them in the US. Who was Józef Sapski? Can you comment on his importance to understanding this tragedy? Um, Józef Czapski um, was a um, Polish writer and artist who survived the Katyn massacre and wrote a memoir about it. He was a very distinguished man. He was a wonderful artist and a, a rather extraordinary human being, a very a deeply compassionate, uh, very religious um, but, you know, incredibly um, de- decent person. And he his account of his time in um, Soviet captivity is one of the most vivid and um, useful documents that we have of that time. It's beautifully written. As I said, he's a very compassionate, a deeply humane person. And I think it, it's a wonderful book to read. And it was one of the first books that I read in preparation for this, and it had a a very big influence on me because I think his character and that of another uh, prisoner who left a memoir called Bronisław Winarski, um, they both exhibited such extraordinary humanity um, despite everything that had happened to them that I found them very very inspirational um, uh, as human beings. And Chapsky was tasked by General Anders with looking for the missing officers. So part of the narrative um, is that once the remaining 
few surviving prisoners were liberated, um, the Polish army was forming on Soviet soil, but they couldn't find the majority of their officers. So if you imagine, you've got six to 8,000 officers missing and nobody knows where they are. And the survivors don't know where they are because they saw them going home. They thought they were going home. Nobody's heard from them since March 1940. And the general assumption is that, that probably they were sent to a labor camp, uh, to a gulag somewhere in farthest Siberia. Um, so there was this tremendous mystery surrounding the absence of these men and, and, and General Anders trying to form this army really needed them. You know, it represents a really significant proportion of experienced Polish officers to form the army. And Chapsky was sent by Anders to go and try and find information um, when they were in the Soviet Union. And he sets off on a rather <laughs> desperate journey, going to see the various bigwigs of the NKVD in Moscow and Brusilov and asking them questions and trying to find out what's happened to his fellow officers. And he's met with a series of kind of shrugs and obfuscations and, you know, oh my goodness, I don't know where your officers could be. Oh, perhaps they're, oh, perhaps they're in Siberia. Perhaps they've run away. You know, these kind of rather insulting um, sort of uh, fobbings off. So he, he was fobbed off. And it was his experience looking for the missing officers that led Anders and other um, members of the army who were in the Soviet Union at the time to conclude that something very bad had happened to these officers. They didn't yet know what, and a massacre on the scale that it had been perpetrated was very far from what they imagined, but they knew that the total silence surrounding these men could not be anything but sinister. What was Lavrenti Beria's role in the Katyn massacre? So Lavrenti Beria was the head of the NKVD, and he had um, he had brought a kind of what you might call a sort of rationalization of terror to the NKVD. So he he was a very um, what's the word? Um, he was very sort of precise and rational about how he conducted the the, the the business of the NKVD, and it was he who ordered the execution of the men. So as the person who's in charge of the NKVD, which is Stalin's secret police, he was running the whole operation from the top. Where did Polish refugees flee to? It's a tricky one because at the beginning of the war, when the Nazis invaded from the West, then most Poles who could escape, escaped south through Hungary and Romania. That's how my father's family escaped. Um, or if they were in the air force or in the army, you know, they flew out or they, you know, they, they got out as best they could. Um, if you were in the East, um, I don't really know that I can think of many, uh, you know, they, they, the, the Soviets deported hundreds of thousands of Poles to Kazakhstan and Siberia in 1940 when they invaded what was then called the Kresy, the eastern borderlands of Poland, and what is now Western Ukraine and Western Belarus. And um, so many of the Polish citizens at that time died en route or died in various camps. Um, and in 1941, when they were liberated as a consequence of um, the turnaround when uh, the Soviet Union became allied to the UK and hence Poland, um, they made their way down south to join the Polish army in the, in the southernmost part of the Soviet Union. And those that could got out along with the army and went to Persia, as it was then, Iran. And then, then there became a sort of fascinating odyssey, particularly for the women and children. So the men mainly joined the army and travelled on with the army. Many of the women and children were sent to refugee camps in um very far-flung places like India and Africa. And they were sent to specially set up camps there where they um, actually, most of them experienced a, a rather kind of wonderful time until 1946, 1947, when they left to join um, uh, their, their, their husbands, brothers, fathers who had been in the army. Um, so after the war, the places of exile, I suppose, tended to be the UK, 
Australia, Canada, the US, sometimes Latin America, but um, large numbers of, so what was known as Anders Army, so the army that had formed in the Soviet Union and had left and ended up largely fighting in um, Italy, uh, large numbers of those ended up in the UK. Can you comment on the Soviet Medical Commission's response to the Canteen Massacre? How is it different from the International Medical Commission's investigation and response to the massacre? So in 1943, when the Germans uncovered the mass grave of four and a half thousand Polish officers, um, as I referred to earlier, they, they were very keen that this should be investigated as openly as possible because they knew that this was not a crime committed by them and they were anxious that there should be evidence of the fact that it was a Soviet crime. So they invited an international medical commission made up of forensic experts um, from all over Europe. The problem with this was the fact that um, most of these were countries that were occupied by the Nazis. And so you could not definitively argue that they were um, objective. I mean, the truth is that actually they all carried out their tasks with remarkable objectivity um, and produced a, a very uh, an excellent professional report. Um, there should have been an international Red Cross investigation, but that was uh, not permitted by the Soviet Union, because in order to have an international commission, you have to have the agreement of all parties. And uh, as the Soviet Union was a party, to the situation um, that made it possible for them to veto it. After the exhumation uh, and investigations by the International Medical Commission, they produced a report. And this report was given to the Allies as evidence of Soviet guilt. Now, because the Soviets were putting forward this alternative narrative saying, this is not a, a Soviet crime, it's a Nazi crime. This crime was committed when the Nazis had occupied this part of, uh, of Russia near Smolensk. So in order to do that, they had to create a narrative that fitted, or rather they had to create some evidence to fit their narrative. Um, and in order for that narrative to stand any hope of being believed, they had to somehow make it look as if the massacre had taken place in the summer or autumn of 1941, so a year later. And to do this, they had some uh, special NKVD envoys who were sent out to, they dug up some of the graves that had already been uh, created by, you know, when the Polish Red Cross Commission there had, had created graves for, for their compatriots. They dug them up, they planted evidence on them, they planted documents on them with false dates, because the reality was that not a single one of the victims had anything on them that was dated later than March or April 1940, because of course that's when they were killed. Um, and so in order for the Soviet narrative to, to, to look convincing, they had to find documents that were dated later than that. So they planted these. And then uh, they got a Soviet medical expert um, who, who led this commission and who demonstrated for the benefit of various Western journalists invited for the purpose, uh, who tried to prove that um, the state of decomposition of the bodies was um, compatible with bodies that had been in the ground less time than they actually had been. So they also produced a report. It was called the Burdenko Report after Nikolai Burdenko, who was the um, Surgeon General who led it. Uh, and that was also presented to the Allies as evidence supporting their side of the argument. What was the Sikorsky-Maisky Agreement of July 30th, 1941? Can you explain its origins and ramifications? Um, so after the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, the nature of World War II obviously completely changed because the Soviet Union became allied to Britain and the United States. And uh, this meant that by default, Poland, which was allied, although a defeated country, the Polish government in exile was allied to Britain. And so they also became allied to their former enemy. It was a very 
difficult position for the Polish government in exile, which was then led by General Sikorski. Um, but they put together an agreement with Ivan Maisky was the um, ambassador, the Soviet ambassador to the Polish government in exile. And um, no, he wasn't. Sorry, I apologize. Ivan Maisky was the Soviet ambassador to the UK at that time. Um, and it was an agreement uh, about cooperation between the Soviet Union and the Polish government in exile. It allowed the Poles to form an army on Soviet soil that was a distinctly Polish army under Polish command. And it also allowed for the release of hundreds of thousands of deported Polish citizens who had been uh, taken in four waves in 19, between 1940 and 1941 to various points in, in the Soviet Union, and they were then uh, officially allowed, they were amnestied was the term, which a term which the Poles were not very happy with because an amnesty suggests that they had committed a crime, which evidently they hadn't. But that, that was the broad nature of the pact. How have Poles remembered the Katyn massacre? How have artists, filmmakers, poets, novelists, politicians, and writers remembered the event? Uh, that's a very big question. Um, I mean, I can't speak, you know, except broadly to say that um, during the time of communism, uh, Katyn could not officially be remembered in Poland um, and efforts to, to remember it or commemorate it as a Soviet crime were repressed. Um, uh, nevertheless, obviously, people did try to commemorate it. And in the West, it was, it was commemorated by the exiled Polish communities very regularly. Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the, 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 the families uh, of the Katyn victims made sure that you know, commemoration became a very important aspect of um, remembrance. Um, and as I said earlier, the commemoration sites now in, in all of the three main burial sites which were uh, sort of didn't come into being till about the year 2000. Um, I think it's featured a lot in literature, in poetry in, in Poland. I think, I think in the 19, sort of up until maybe the 1970s, there was quite a lot of awareness about it in the West. Um, and there were efforts to try to um, draw attention to um, to, to the injustice of what had happened. Um, there was particularly um, a, a big effort in the 1950s in America to, to try to prove Soviet guilt. Um, but as time has gone on, it's kind of become forgotten in the West, whereas in Poland, because it was a repressed memory for so long, uh, it's still quite a live and, and active uh, subject as were many subjects to do with the Second World War in, in many parts of Eastern Europe, because they, they were never discussed properly uh, under communism, under Soviet rule. Um, and I think throughout the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, there was a, you know, a very positive move of uh, scholarship and collaboration between Russia, Ukraine, and uh, Poland in terms of establishing facts uh, commemoration, uh, recognition, um, and, and things were moving in, in a good direction. Belarus, not so much because Belarus has been, uh, you know, ruled by Lukashenko ever since 1990 and, and their archives remain steadfastly inaccessible. Um, and I think after the 2010 Smolensk crash, uh, there was a, a sort of initial sense of joint suffering between Russia and Poland uh, and uh, positive things. And that later became very politicized. And on the Polish side, there was a very strong kind of nationalist, anti-Russian sentiment. And on the Russian side, uh, that has now become a very, very sort of fervent, um, almost a sort of denial uh, sort of policy. Um, there was a one major film has been made about Katyn by the Polish director Andrzej Wajda, which stands as the kind of uh, historical benchmark for uh, artistic, I suppose, film commitment to it. But I'm, there are many, many other works about it. 
What was the Katyn massacre? Can you describe what transpired? Uh, what was the death toll? What were the circumstances surrounding this event? So the Katyn massacre is an umbrella term that uh, encapsulates the murder of around 22,000 Polish prisoners of war in April to May 1940. They were captured by the Soviets in the opening stages of World War II as the Polish army was retreating from the Nazi invasion in the West and the Soviet Red Army invaded from the East. Um, they were taken to mainly to three specialized prison camps where they were kept uh, in captivity in um, camps that were a sort of hybrid. They weren't prisoner of war camps. They were run by the NKVD, the Stalinist secret police, and they were mainly intelligence camps. And they were kept there for seven months where they were interrogated um, and kept in very poor conditions. And then in April to May 1940, they were murdered under the strictest secrecy following an order, a direct order from Joseph Stalin and Lavrenti Beria, who was the head of the NKVD. Um, their deaths were completely secret until April 1943, so three years later, when the German army had occupied the Smolensk area uh, and the Katyn forest, where they found mass graves, which were the bodies of four and a half thousand of these prisoners who represented the prisoners from the Kozhelsk camp. Um, and that's why it's known as the Katyn massacre, because they were found in the Katyn forest. Um, and it, it wasn't until uh, the 1990s that the full truth was known, that in fact, there were far more victims and they were in several sites. I hope that's comprehensive enough. Yes. How has the memory of the Katyn massacre been impacted by living survivors dying out? What does the future hold for memory of the tragedy? Well, I think it's quite a long time since anybody who actually survived was still alive. You know, there's, it's been a while since, uh, you know, most most of the, the few survivors, uh, you know, there were 395 survivors. Most of them were already dead by the time the truth came out in the 1990s. It was, there were only one or two, Joseph Chapsky, who lived to be, I can't remember, I think about 102 or something, um, Zdzisław Peszkowski, who was a priest, who was very young at the time, who also lived to quite a, a long age. Um, so, the, I mean, they're all dead now. Um, but, you know, their families continue to commemorate it. I think as time goes on, you get a kind of double effect. I, it's it's very difficult. I think we're, we're in such a fluid time politically I think there's so much that's going on at the moment that influences these subjects and makes it very difficult to actually say how they are going to be seen and how they're going to be commemorated. Because, you know, back in 2010, you had Vladimir Putin turning up to a remembrance service for Katyn and, and talking about friendship and, commemor and joint commemoration. And we're a very, very long way from that kind of situation now. Um, and I think in Poland, equally, the subject was very highly politicized uh, by the government of the day um, in, 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 the, in, the, in recent years. Uh, and although it's not quite such a live issue anymore, I think there's still potential for this, this story to continue causing controversy and pain for, for a long time. I, I mean, I would hope that at some point it reaches a stage where actually it can be commemorated as a part of history rather than as something that's still quite so painfully alive for so many people. You know, I think one of the difficulties for, for Poland and other countries that were under the Soviet rule is that there was so much that was lied about for so long and so much that was suppressed that you get this kind of delayed reaction to it where things that needed to be processed are still only being processed now. In what ways does your book and our conversation enable readers and listeners to reflect on the cruelties of Joseph Stalin in new and different ways? Well, 
Um, I would prefer people to reflect less on the cruelties of Joseph Stalin, although I think everyone should bear in mind what a brutal tyrant he was, and nobody should ever forget that. I think for me, what I really would hope that my book does is enable one to look at the people who, who tried to tell the truth, who tried to bear witness and who assembled facts, who found evidence, who told their story and who resolutely carried on trying to present a factual version of events in the face of a kind of state-sponsored false narrative. Um, and, I, you know, I think in the context of Ukraine today, what's going on in Ukraine, uh, where there are a lot of people trying to document war crimes, um, I think this is a very important thing to hold on to, that there are people who have the courage to persist, not just for one year, not just for three years, but for decades, to try to make sure that the truth comes out eventually. And, and, and Joseph Chapsky and people, other, other people who, who bore witness and who took enormous personal risks to, to speak about what happened present a very inspirational um, and important example of how you can preserve your own humanity and, the, and compassion in the face of the brutality of, some, of the Soviet state and someone like Stalin. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Would you like to tell us about your present research? Well, I have to admit, it's taken me quite a long time to move on from writing this book. Um, I, it was a very hard and difficult subject and it sort of obsessed me for quite a long time. So it's taken me a little while to move out from under it. And I'm now working on another book which is also about 20th century European history, but it, it's set in France this time. And, and, and the main theme is about exile. So there's a lot of familiar territory, but it, it, it's structured in a different way. And it's going to be more of a, a sort of literary narrative as, as a book. And, and um, although I'm, again, <laughs> find myself dealing with dark themes, um, despite my best intentions to, to try and write about lighter things, um, it, it's incredibly fascinating. And, and that's probably about all I can say about it at this at this stage. I wish you the very best of luck. Thank I, you, Harry. I would like to end by conveying my utmost gratitude to you for your thoughtfulness during the course of today's dialogue and to thank you for all the sacrifice that you invested in bringing this remarkable book and amazing monograph into fruition for the benefit of us all. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that. As we end today's dialogue, I am signing off by reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Jane Rogoiska. She is an independent writer. She is the author of the book we've been discussing during the course of today's dialogue, Surviving Katyn, Stalin's Polish Massacre and the Search for Truth, published in London by One World Publishing 2021.